a lot of people think that they can use an SBIR or a SIBR to bridge to the next round of VC funding, and they can't do that because by the end of that SBIR, you likely won't have the traction you need to get to your next round of VC funding and certainly not your next round of government funding. And so it ends up not being a bridge, but it ends up being a peer where you just are going to run off the end. This is Unbelievable, the show about the amazing founders and companies who've used government R&D grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We're Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT and Jeff Orson from FedScout. And on today's show, how the SEAL's frustration on the plume plus SBIRs led to a new way to communicate on the battlefield. I grew up in the Northeast, graduated from high school in 2003 and had always wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So went right into the Navy, right to SEAL training, went through BUDS class 252 and spent the majority of my eight year career as a SEAL operational out of the East Coast, out of SEAL Team 4. And during that time, I did four deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, mostly operating in urban environments, doing counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. <clears throat> and this is between uh, 2003 and 2011. And on my first deployment in particular, I had an experience which was pretty impactful for me. I, I don't want to give too many in-depth details, but I'll set the stage for it. We were going out on an operation in Baghdad. This is 06, and it was pretty chaotic over there. It was like the Wild West in, in some of these areas. And we were going into a neighborhood looking for a high-ranking Al-Qaeda operative. Big army, conventional army had just been shot out of there like a week earlier. So we knew it was sort of a bad neighborhood, pretty hostile to American forces. We're going out at you know two o'clock in the morning looking for, like I said, this senior operative. And right before we roll out, I'm the lead turret gunner. So I'm on the, the number one Humvee and I'm behind a big 50 cal machine gun. And my job during the operation will be to keep everybody out of the north, right? So I'm on the perimeter and I'm to keep everybody from coming in from the north as the operation is taking place behind me. And right before we roll out, Intel pulls me into the to the operations center called the Joint Operations Center, the Jock, and they've got a drone flying above the target area. And they say, "Hey, look, we've got three or four armed, you know, guys patrolling in your sector. So just be aware, you might encounter them while you're out there." And that, plus the context of going into this neighborhood, we were expecting to get some contact when we went in there. And effectively, I made what was a sound tactical decision at the time and ended up being the wrong decision when the dust settled and, and we learned more. And as a result, a few people lost their lives that were that shouldn't have. And that was pretty impactful for me. Um, and really what it came down to was a kind of a failure of intelligence and a failure of communication. There were some folks in that area that we were unaware of. And even if our operations center was aware of their presence, they wouldn't have been able to communicate that effectively to me, just given the challenges with the communications on the battlefield and the bottlenecks and, and how information flows from the ops center out into the field. For the people who are listening who haven't had experiences downrange, can you describe what the actual process is to communicate? Sure. So I'll, I'll start from my position behind that turret. At the time, I had one radio in my kit, and so I'm hearing conversations on one radio channel. There's probably three or four channels with that particular radio going on at any one point during that operation. So I was on the mobility or the, the kind of perimeter freak, if you will, frequency. There was an assault frequency, there was a command and control frequency, and there was a fires frequency, which is what we use to talk to the aircraft. Then there's another radio called the SATCOM radio, which is satellite communications back to the operations center. That's a totally separate radio. And unless you have that radio, you're not hearing any of that traffic. 
And, you know, so if you're on the Intel team and you're back in the operation center and you discover some piece of intelligence that you need to relay forward, you generally have to get on the satellite radio, call that into the communicator who's there on the ground, who has that, that SATCOM radio. He's got to get it on the SATCOM radio. He's got to then pick up his assault radio, you know, his, or his tactical radio, and he could be on one of four nets at any one time. And he's got to telephone that message to anybody that might be relevant. And sometimes he sends it out to all the different frequencies and it's fine because there's a lull in the operation. Sometimes there's so much traffic going on at any one point that he can never really effectively relay that without stepping on something that's, you know, imminently important. And so at every stage, you've got these sort of bottlenecks where you've got to play telephone to relay things from one freak to the other. If you don't relay it effectively or it gets stepped on, meaning somebody else queues up the mic while you're speaking and it cuts you off, that what could be a critical piece of intelligence won't make it to half the team. And that I have friends that have, you know, had blue on blues because they didn't get a particular radio call. It just, these challenges impact people in ways that, that don't get talked about and don't get written about, but they are, they are relevant in every single operation I've ever been on. Uh, later in my career, when I held leadership positions, I had two radios on monitoring two different frequencies at any one point. And so I had one person talking in each ear at the same time and throwing a firefight in the middle of that. And all of a sudden I'm super stressed out. I'm not able to process information at all coming in audibly, let alone one person talking in each year. And, uh, and so when things get dangerous and the shooting starts, that's when you need to be able to communicate the most effectively. And that's effectively when it just shuts down because uh, there's so much stress involved. Most people don't know this, but when you're super stressed out, your sense of hearing is the second sense that you lose and you lose it very quickly. So you know, about 40% of your brain is allocated towards processing information visually. And I think it's only about four to 5% is towards processing information audibly. And so, you know, you can imagine that when everything comes over the radio and you get stressed out, your ability to actually detect that and perceive it drops pretty quickly. So, like I said, it's just, it's a challenge that every warfighter has experienced on the battlefield. And what nobody talks about is that's in the tactical environment. But in an office, in the operations center, in air traffic control, they're doing the same thing either over the radio forward to guys in the field or between each other, they're just over the telephone. And so some of the most time-sensitive, strategic, critical information that gets passed through the DOD gets passed over like Cisco landlines, which in and of itself is a big problem. <clears throat> so you said you did eight years with the teams. And then, so at, at the end of those eight years, where were you? Did you have, you, you had a need, you had identified this need. Did you also have an idea for a solution or were you thinking about making this your career? Can you t walk us through that thought process? Sure. So at the end of my eight years, I was 26 years old. It was 2011. I decided to get out and I knew 100% that I wanted to build some technology to bring back into the military, not just to help so soft guys, special operations forces, SEALs and, and whatnot, but to help anybody that was on the battlefield and putting their life on the line. And, but at, at the time when I was getting out, I, I had gone into the military at 18. That was, that had been my focus my entire life. I knew nothing about the private sector. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. I didn't know anything about venture capital or technology. So I, I had a lot to learn and I knew that. So I went to Columbia. They have a great program for non-traditional veterans and, and folks like that to get my undergraduate degree. And because I knew I, I was going to do this, I focused on computer science, becoming somewhat technical. 
I banged on as many doors in the business school as I could and took all the classes on venture capital and everything else that they let me take. And uh, so I <clears throat> tried to educate myself and, and get a lay of the land before I actually founded Raven, which ended up being in 2017. And at the time when I founded it, I was very focused on moving that that information that came in over the radio to a visual medium and effectively building a heads up display for soldiers, something that they could wear in the field that would present information to them visually, which is far easier to digest and, and take in. And so I was focused on augmented reality at the time, which is the kind of underlying technology behind like heads up displays and, and things like that, at least on the software side. And at that time, this is circa two, 2017, Around 2015, the, there was a big narrative shift in the DoD where it was all about human machine teaming. So they were, they were planning on fielding thousands of drones, everything from small tactical quadcopters to tracked vehicles and all these things that were going to have varying levels of autonomy. So instead of sending a soldier into a building, you could send a drone and that drone could clear the building and uh, make it far safer for a soldier to enter. And so we were all kind of expecting this wave of technology to hit the battlefield. And so the natural fit for a heads-up display was to take full motion video feed and other types of telemetry from these tactical systems and present them to warfighters in kind of a, a, a dashboard fashion or a heads-up display through the heads-up display. So that's what our initial focus was on. And in 2017, it was just me and a deck, and I went out and, and raised some money from kind of angels and friends and family and uh, slowly built up the team and was able to win a couple of SBIRs or the SIBRs, the Small Business Innovation Research Grants from the DOD. And that's where things have started. We're looking forward to talking about your funding, but can you describe what Raven's solution looks like? Sure. So we pivoted away from the heads of display, of course, and I can talk about that. But our solution now effectively digitizes and automates communication or coordination between warfighters. And it, it works just as well for soldiers on the battlefield as it does for workers in an office, whether you're an intel person communicating with the operations center or communicating with air traffic control and everything in between. You know, in our civilian lives, <clears throat> we use all sorts of tools, different software tools to coordinate. And I use the word coordinate because it denotes a level of action on either side to achieve a common goal, right? So if we want to, if I want you to come to my position, I send you a pin on Google Maps. If I want to order food, I use DoorDash. If I want to unlock my door when you arrive, I use a smart lock, right? There are all these different tools, software tools that we use to coordinate. Well, the DOD doesn't really have much like that. Most of the communication and coordination that happens is all over the radio. It's really great to communicate over the radio, which is just exchanging information and ideas. It's really difficult to coordinate over the radio, which is, you know, I've got to send you a location and you've got to do something with that information. And so we have created a system which allows warfighters to take the tasks that they might normally execute over the radio, kind of their coordination tasks, if you will, turn them into automated workflows so they can input who, what, when, where, why to some capacity, and then they can automate certain elements of that. And they can then use those, uh, we call them bolts, B-O-L-T-S. They can use those bolts on whatever, whatever device suits their operational environment. So a soldier would use it in a smartwatch. They would be able to, you know, execute a convoy over a smartwatch or call in an airstrike potentially over a smartwatch, uh, communicating with an aircraft. Whereas if you're an Intel person or you're in the operations center, you would just use it in a PC interface. And our goal is to support everything in between because we want to support all the different operating environments out there. And so with something like uh, Helios, which is what our product is called, 
you can coordinate with, you know, your colleagues, or your teammates in seconds, what would normally take upwards of five, six minutes over the radio. So it's a pretty drastic improvement. It's really making that shift from doing something analog to moving it to software. Once you're in software, you can automate things, you can create data, you can do all these fancy things to just make it far more efficient. I just right now am having all of these examples pop in my head. And I feel like listeners who were in the military are also having these, just like these memories pop in their head. And so mine is 20 years ago when I'm training and learning about medevac, like why is something so important, so difficult? And it sounds like your solution can actually make this much easier. It, it does. And most of the calls that come out are all verbatim. They come out the same way every time. And you just drop kind of unique information in at a few points, like your location, you know, the call sign of the casualty, the type of injury, something like that. It's because they're verbatim, they're very easy to turn into these pre-configured little, little workflows or bolts. And as that's the case, you can go out in the field with a suite of 20 bolts that you would use for 90% of your communication and you can execute those. And, and like you said, it, it can take something that it was really difficult over the radio where you're trying to pass a location and you're on the side of a mountain and you've got your write in the rain notebook and you're trying to write down a 10 digit grid and then send that to somebody else over a different rate. I mean, these things take minutes and they should take seconds because in software you can do all that and you can automate all of that. And so we give warfighters the ability to do that. And as a result, the, the product has been met with, with pretty strong enthusiasm throughout the DOD. So how did you, you know, build your team and how did you get those sivers? Sure. So what I, I mentioned earlier, when I started, it was just me and a deck going around. I was able to raise a little bit of money. Fortunately for me at the time, I had some passive income from a few jobs that I had in New York. So I wasn't drawing a salary so I could raise a little bit and it would go a long way. When I was at Columbia, I worked in the augmented reality lab, which turns out a number of PhDs every year. And I was able to find a co-founder <clears throat> at the time who joined the team. And together we were able to leverage some technology he had built early on to demonstrate conceptually what we were thinking with our product. We were able to use that to go out and, and get a couple of SBIRs through the DOD, or at least get those conversations started. They took a year or so to materialize. With that traction, with the SBIRs that we were getting, we were able to go out and, and raise a little bit more money. And then with that more, a little bit more money, we were able to build a better team. So you have those three or four different lanes where you've got investor interest, uh, customer interest, potential employee interest, right? And then, and then ultimately product development. And it was push one, an inch or two down that one lane, and then the other one, an inch or two down that lane and, and go back and forth, um, <clears throat> which was not the ideal way to do it. I think normally in other, other industries, you're able to just prove a certain amount of traction and then go out and raise a significant round. But because we were building for DOD, there aren't a lot of investors that, that will just write a, you know, million and a half dollar check for that industry. And we had to do it incrementally uh, along the way. You're telling the story, it's the end of 2021, and you're talking about a few years ago. So you make it sound really not seamless, even though you're juggling a lot of things, it sounds really seamless. But can you talk about some of the challenges? Sure. So we were lucky in that we had, you know, coming out of the, the SEAL teams, I had a few other folks on the team that were military, actually three out of four of them were former SEALs. And then one, one is former army. We had good inroads, especially in the special operations environment. And that's generally where you want to start for a lot of technologies that are going to hit the battlefield because they're the early adopters, if you will, in the military. And so it was easy for us to get to users 
it was a kind of a, a next logical step was to get to kind of the future concepts groups out there, which which kind of managed the different SBIRs and things like that, or had relationships where they could get you SBIRs with them as the, the sponsor, if you will. And so we had one of those groups, particularly in Naval Special Warfare, which is the SEAL teams, they pushed us to two different groups that, that got us SIBRs. One was Office of Naval Research, and the other was an Air Force group that, that was kind of one of the more startup-friendly SIBRs that's out there. And so we only had to apply to, you know, we were two for two, I guess, but that's because we had those pre-existing relationships and they paved the way for us. And the application process is, was wildly different for the two diff, the two SIBRs. O&R was a lot more geared towards academia. It's a formal, AFWorks is kind of a, it's kind of a weird organization. It's almost an intermediary between customers. And then they have the ability to leverage SBIR dollars. They're not beholden to the same standards or they've, they've rewritten the standards for applying and they're much more startup friendly. Regardless, it's pretty onerous to apply to these things. Jeff and I were talking, both of us have applied to SIBRs that were due you know, in early January and, and that effectively erases any break you might take over December. And, and so that's how we got involved in those. And we had, like I said, we had access to users just from our networks, but what, what a lot of people don't know is that unless you're under contract, the DOD is really going to get a lot of heartburn when it comes to talking with you because there have been things that have happened in the past. And I didn't know this until recently, but you know, though there'll be a company that's talking to a random seal out there and he'll say, oh yeah, we'll do this and this, and we'll buy this number if you build this and they'll go out and build it. And then they'll come back and, and the buyers in the DOD are like, we don't even, we've never even heard of you before. And we're of course not going to buy millions of dollars worth of this. And then they'll sue the government because the government rep told them that if they built it, they would buy it. And so there's all these rules around who can talk to the DOD. If you're not under contract, they generally don't want users talking with, with vendors because of false promises and it, you know the liability that it creates. So there's a lot of barriers to get that information or to get uh, tight feedback loops from customers. And so being... Uh, on a SIBR or being under contract in some capacity really is necessary for a lot of groups to feel comfortable to, to bring you in. So other than just the non-dilutive capital that it provides, it, it provides unfettered access to, to, to user groups and even buyers as well. So it's pretty critical to get on contract in some capacity, whether it's a SIBR or an OTA or something like that early on, if you're going after the DOD. So you, you mentioned that your team is predominant, it's all, or at least originally it was all military. So you're so you had really strong connections with end users, may, less so buyers, but at least one or two degrees from there. But were there certain skills, certain kinds of people that you were missing that made it challenging? Yeah, actually, I, I glossed over it. But we, we uh, when we first started, the first two years, I was the only vet on the team. We had mostly engineers and designers. We had a, yeah, it was basically only me, and I was leveraging the the relationships that I had. But yeah, absolutely, we. I mean. Now, the most important people on the team are the people that are going to build the product for you. And I had a degree in computer science, but I don't write code. If I'm writing code, something has gone horribly wrong. And so the first person that we brought on was a software engineer who had a PhD in augmented reality. The second person that we brought on was actually at the time when it, for, let me rewind, but when we started, we thought we were going to be able to leverage an off the shelf heads up display for soldiers. We felt like there was enough money. VC money pouring into the industry that we would, there would be something out there eventually that would emerge that would be relevant for the battlefield. After learning, exploring a lot and learning what was on 
most of the company's roadmaps out there, we realized there wasn't anything that was going to be usable by soldiers in the field. So we decided that if we were going to solve this problem, we had to build our own. Of course, neither of us were hardware inclined and had no training in that in, in that discipline. And so we we found a guy who was widely considered one of the leading experts in the industry through a podcast. And I actually recruited him first as an advisor, then he joined as our chief science officer. And, and he gave us a lot of credibility to actually go out and, and build the hardware that we needed to build. So we started there and then we he brought in a, a guy who had built ruggedized hardware for the Intel community earlier on and the team scaled from there. But we were probably, shoot, we were probably seven or eight before we brought in any additional vets. And you brought something in or, or you mentioned something earlier about having access to buyers. We had access to users, but not so much buyers. Initially, we did not have access to buyers, but once we got our feet under us, and this is a couple of years in, we went out and and hired uh, a seal who had after his career as a seal which was 11 years he went and ran a portfolio for naval special warfare so he actually was one of the dod buyers so he brought his rolodex with him and he brought you know a really in-depth understanding of the the monster that is the dod's acquisition process and so he's helped us navigate that but that's been absolutely critical because without uh knowledge of how the system actually works how the bureaucracy actually works you're just not going to be able to get anywhere so it's interesting. So we, we talked to another company, uh, in, which in a lot of ways has a lot of parallels to yours in the sense that what they're building is basically social media analytics to identify extremist behaviors. And the, the clear first customer for them was the DOD and the U.S. security and, and institutions, much like the clear first customer for you was DOD. They made the decision that actually DOD is just too hard of a first customer. It's too long. It requires too much infrastructure, too much effort to go apply. You looked at the same set of challenges and said, regardless, I'm still going to make DOD my first customer. I'm just curious if you have any reflections on DOD as a first customer and how to make that a successful choice. Sure. So there's a concept out there in the startup world of mercenaries versus missionaries. Mercenaries being people that either have a technology that they're in love with and they're, you know, they've developed and they want to apply to any industry to solve any problem, or they find a market that's growing and they just want to get involved. So they find the pain points and then develop the technology to solve those pain points. Those are the mercenaries. And then there are the missionaries, which as the name describes, are just on a mission to convert people and are going to do this thing no matter what. I was definitely in the missionary camp. I still am very much so. It didn't matter how challenging it got. The experiences that I had overseas, the experiences that my my friends and teammates are still having to this day overseas, I, I, I will never stop going after this particular mission. And so it was never a question for me. I got a lot of pushback on it and I got a lot of people telling me I should develop the technology in a consumer space or a commercial space first and then make the jump as many dual use companies do. And that is for many technologies and for many solutions, a really viable solution or a, a viable path. And, and in fact, probably a better path, but some environments in the DOD are so unique that you will never find an analog in, you know, the commercial sector. And I think being on the battlefield and getting shot at and actually experiencing those problems, there's nothing else like it. And so if you go out and you want to develop a technology for a different industry. It could be heavy industry. It could be people running around out in the field, could be emergency. There are some overlaps there. 
but ultimately I think if you're going to do it, you've got to, you've got to do it right for, for this particular environment. And so I, we felt like there wasn't anything that we could do in the commercial sector that would translate very well to the DOD. And so it was a, a mix of my mission was to go after the DOD and to solve problems for people that I cared about. And I also didn't feel like for this particular environment, there was going to be much use in going after a commercial use case. So it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult decision for me. It wasn't really a decision at all, but for most companies going after the DOD, I think it is a, something you should think long and hard about. And in fact, in my opinion, unless the DOD, unless you're serious about going after the DOD, you should probably steer clear, at least in the early stages. Find a commercial industry which you can penetrate and do that and get to sustainability and then make the jump into the DOD. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we can talk about. So speaking of the differences between the commercial and defense markets, how's a different building product for the DOD? Yeah, writing software for the DOD is very difficult. And there's a number of reasons that it's difficult. One, to start, many of the programs, the program offices of the buyers, they don't even know how to buy software. They have contracting officers, which literally will not write contracts for software. They just don't understand it. So for example, if you're building for a lethality group that buys, you know, hardware for soldiers, they're used to buying guns and bullets and body armor, night vision goggles. They literally will not be able to purchase software if you want to have a recurring license. They just, it'll be a bridge too far for them or it'll take them a few years to figure out. And so if you don't have hardware to sell to them, they're not going to be able to buy your product, at least in, a, in the time frame that you as an early stage startup need. The other thing is they just have a complete lack of understanding of how much it actually takes to build software. We, <laughs> one of our contracts, which is for, I think like one and a half to $2 million to turn what is a prototype into a full product. So get through all the encryption implemented to, you know, go through all the QA to make it deployable by soldiers on the battlefield, one and a half to $2 million. It's like a, a penny for what you need to turn something into a production software. It's like a fraction of what you need. And the program office guy, the buyer looked at us and he goes, why are you charging so much? You're just writing an app. And I almost, you know, I, I almost like fell out of my chair at the time. I took a couple of deep breaths. And uh, so they have a fundamental lack of understanding of how to purchase it. They have a fundamental lack of understanding of how to, what is required to actually build it. And then their budgets just are not really aligned to recurring software models. Now that's, that's some of the buyers, not all the buyers, certainly. If you're lucky enough to get to some of the buyers that do know how to buy software, and you're going to touch a DOD network. You've got to go through very lengthy certification processes, authorities to operate. You've got to have your code tested six ways from Sunday, which is all important and is, is necessary. And there are third-party groups out there will, which will now you know help you expedite that. But, but that can make it very challenging as well. And if you're looking to build software for the DOD, you've got to spend a lot of time up front making sure that you build in into your runway. A, do you have the right buyer that can actually buy it? B, do you have the runway to, once you're done with development, get through the ATO process and all, a lot of the certification process. And then something did, I didn't mention, the DOD has a very particular architecture, which they're looking for to run something on DOD networks. And I don't want to speak incorrectly about it, but you need to talk to the folks that are in the know about what that architecture looks like to make sure that you've designed it from the ground up to be interoperable with their systems and with their networks. Because if you don't, you're going to be, you're going to be, it's going to take a long time to rewrite that. It's one of those things where you got to get with the right people, tell them what you're building very early on and validate your assumptions at every step and then build in the budget to go through very lengthy certification processes on top of finding the right buyer. 
So you've touched on some of your private funding. Can you talk a little bit about that journey from from the beginning to now and how it paralleled your SBIR and OTA or other opportunities? And if you were getting conflicting guidance, whether it was a negative or a positive for your the VCs you were talking to that you were working with the government? Sure. So we have been around, we're coming up on five years now. And Three and a half years were absolutely brutal. We learned what it feels like to not have product market fit. We pivoted throughout 2020, throughout COVID. And coming out of the backside of that, the end of 2020 and, and throughout this last year, we have a very clear vision of where we're going and uh, are very confident from the signal we're getting inside the DOD that, that we have strong product market fit. So in the last year, <clears throat> um, throughout that time, throughout that five years, we've raised four and a quarter million incrementally you know, didn't all come in at once. We did get into Y Combinator in 2019. We raised about a million coming out of that, which was great. And when it comes to fundraising, when you're DOD focused, there are a lot of folks out there who are inspired by the mission, who want to support the cause, who, you know, who believe in investing in the space. But in, in the Valley, fundraising is all about momentum. It's all about being investing in the latest and greatest, uh, the, the hottest fad out there. And the DOD, while there is a cabal of investors that will place bets on the DOD and are looking at it as an interesting market that might open up to, to software startups, it's still contrarian. And there aren't a lot of investors out there who are going to you know, be comfortable writing a check. And even if you get one partner in a firm really interested in the mission, when they go to their investment committee meetings and they try to push that deal stacked against 15 other deals that are web 3.0 or AI or, you know, some other kind of hot sector. And there's just going to be a million questions thrown at them from their partners that they don't know how to answer because it's the DOD and almost nobody is familiar with it. It can be, it can certainly be difficult to get investors involved. I think earlier on when they initially opened up, it was a little bit easier because you could go out and get a grant through, OT, sorry, through DIU or some of these other organizations out there. And that was good signal for investors. And so they would place bets just on those contracts, what are called OTAs, other transaction agreements. Nowadays, for many of those investors, they've seen a million of those OTAs come through. They've seen 10 million AFWorks grant or AFWorks SIBRs come through their doors. And they know that they basically have little to no bearing on whether or not you actually get into production with the DOD, meaning they actually buy your product to use it, not just give you some R&D dollars. And they have a really hard time diligencing that because the DOD literally won't let their people talk to these investors and tell them, yes, we like this. Yes, we see a future from this. And so they can't do diligence anything prior to getting a production contract. So their filter is, hey, do you have you know what's called program office dollars, Pro a program office being the buyer for the DOD? Do you have actual buyers interested in your product that are writing you checks to purchase it, not to do research and development on it? And that's the only filter that they have that is really reasonable for them. And it is really difficult to comp for companies to get to that point. And so that's why the dual use track is so prevalent is because until you can get to those production contracts, investors can't diligence. It takes the DOD a long time for you to get there. And you're, it's just not realistic that you're going to get there off SIBRs alone because you won't be able to, you know, if you get a $2 million SIBR, you won't be able to raise an incremental, whatever incremental round you need to get to the next level because that $2 million doesn't show any traction to the investors. And when you look at your funding roadmap, if you're going to raise 18 to 24 months from VCs to keep going and you get a, a $2 million SIBR that has a period of performance of 
18 to 24 months, at the end of that SIBR, you're not going to have the traction almost guaranteed to get to that next stage of funding. And so you're going to be stuck in that valley of death. And so, you know, much easier to, uh, to go the commercial route, build up in the commercial route and then make the jump in. Now it can be done to just go straight DOD. And there are companies out there that have proven it. Most of the companies that have raised big rounds like Anduril, Rebellion, Shield AI, those companies that were DOD first, they have stacked founding teams where they have a lot of pedigree, you know, repeat founders backed by some, in some cases, there are VCs on the team. So they have almost an endless supply of capital and uh, they can go out and raise these big rounds. But unless you have a billionaire backing you, it's going to be really difficult and you're going to have to pound, uh, pound your head against the wall for a long time. But like I said, you can't do it. You just have to be really committed to doing it. So you started off bootstrapping. You went from there to do some small friends and family, I know, just local angel investors. That allowed you to build the nucleus of a team, a, a technology team. That's what allowed you to get into Y Combinator. Y Combinator opened up your first exposure to some institutional capital. You said about a mill. That technology, that, that build allowed you to then go after the ONR, the AFWorks. Sibbers, uh, so the, the parallel process, you're burning down the Y Combinator capital while you're waiting for the Sibbers to come through. Those come through, give you another capital infusion. I guess, quite, did, did I get that right, number one? And number two, when did program office, like actual legitimate revenue start layering into that story? Sure. So we, you got that timeline mostly correct. When we graduated from Y Combinator, we, we had actually won, I think, been awarded both the SBIRs. So that means we got the official like thumbs up. Yes, you have gotten the contract. But of course, it takes the bureaucracy months and months to actually churn out the contract. So for one, we got the award. We got the official notice in March. We didn't sign and start invoicing till November. And you can imagine on, you know, a startup runway where you have 18 to 24 months in the bank at most, that's a significant chunk of, of non-dilutive capital that we budgeted for it coming in much earlier than that. As given what we were told and it, it didn't come for what, six, seven months. And so it was, that's a significant chunk of your runway out the door. So for the most part, yeah, that was right. Except we had won those Sibbers around the time that we were hitting demo day in Y Combinator. From there, we were able to leverage that those dollars to keep going for a while. And then we hit our pivot in early 2020, right when that, when COVID hit and everybody went into lockdown is when we really determined that we needed to pivot. We went out and because COVID had hit, I think everybody went out and tapped their existing investors and raised some additional capital just to plus up their bank account because nobody knew it was going to happen with COVID. So we did the same thing and that carried us through the pivot. And fast forward to today where actually fast forward to May of 2021. So we conceptually knew what we were going to build at the end of 2020 through all our interviews and our research had our first prototype by May of 2021. And we demoed that with seals and Marines and other groups. And the feedback was phenomenal. They started sending emails to program office folks, to their buyers. And to give you an example of how quickly they can move when they want to, we gave a demo on a Thursday, on a Saturday, the senior enlisted advisor um, from that group, the senior enlisted guy from that group sent an email to his buyer 
And then on Tuesday, we got a call from that buyer that they had talked with SOCOM and they were finding us some money. So they can move quickly when they want to, but that is extremely rare. So fast forward to today, we have two different grants that we have either been awarded already, one through the Marine Corps. We have another one, which was sole sourced from, from SOCOM. And then we have a third that is going to go up for competition high probability we win it just given the scope of, of what it is, uh, what's involved in it. And the total, all three of those will bring in eight and a quarter million. So that's, that's real money to play with. And two of those grants are directly from program offices. And that's really difficult to do, but we have a pretty compelling product. It's pretty novel compared to the dominant narratives that most companies build to. And it solves a number of tactical and strategic problems that, uh, that folks are pretty interested in given the, the you know, shift in strategy from violent extremism to you know, great power competition. Um, but those, you know, all three of those grants, while we've one is sole source, meaning there's no competition, it's directly for us. The other was competed. We won't start invoicing on the one that was competed till the middle of the year. The one that was sole source, we'll start invoicing hopefully next month or the month after. And then the one that is going up for competition will be another two, two months probably. And so you can have good kind of visibility, you know, six, seven months out that you're, that you've got these grants incoming, but the money doesn't actually hit the bank account for a good little bit. And, and to be totally honest with you, going from zero starting in May to being on contract in January, February you know, that's six, seven months. That is lightning fast for the DOD. So they can move when they want to, but they don't do that very often. And so I, I generally don't recommend companies to try to go that route. And do you have commercial prospects in your near-term vision? Not in our near term. Like I said, we're very focused on the DOD. That's sucking up all of our bandwidth. There's definite commercial applications, but that'll be probably a few years out still. But relevant for any any industry where people need to get things done in the real world, emergency response, heavy industry, you know, could be mining. I mean, could even be air traffic control where you've got a person sitting at a control tower managing X number of aircraft at any one time. Most of that is all done over the radio. It's done over voice. And like I said, a lot of them are just verbatim calls that can easily be digitized and automated. And so a lot of commercial opportunities out there. We have explored some and validated what we're thinking in, in some of these industries, but just because of bandwidth, we've stayed focused on the DOD. Did COVID impact you much? I, I talked about pivoted, pivoting during COVID and that was really difficult because everything was locked down. You couldn't travel. You couldn't go meet with anybody. Nobody was on base. <clears throat> and uh, we had to get really creative for how we were testing our assumptions and getting good tight feedback loops. And so what we ended up doing, we started just with PowerPoint, doing Zoom calls over PowerPoint. And then we actually spent time developing a demo tool, which we can use in a web browser. And it, it demonstrates exactly how the system works for what a soldier would carry on the battlefield. And that has been absolutely worth its weight in gold. Now we give that, we use that demo tool when we're, when we're um, presenting in person now, because it's been so effective and something that might take a year and a half to build out for the actual product will take a couple of days to throw into a, a demo tool and you can, you know, use that to get feedback, to learn. And it really just expedited tightening those feedback loops. And so if you're working with the DOD, given how spread out the, the different user and buyer groups are and, and how difficult it can be just to even get on base and things like that, to talk with them, the uh, getting creative around how you can demonstrate your value virtually is, will be absolutely invaluable for you, especially in a world where once COVID hit, 
everybody just understood they had to get on board with Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all that. And prior to COVID, it might've been more challenging, but now it's expected. I, I would highly recommend that for any groups out there going after the DOD. I've never heard anybody say they have a contract with the Marine Corps. And my experience as an Army Acquisitions Officer was that the Marines would be very conscientious of their resources and come in once we were almost signing something, once it was TRL 7 to 9 for hardware. A little bit separate from that, you have this path that feels very, it's almost like somebody looked back and planned it out. Like, how did that, how did you land on this path where you started in the military and then you went to school for computer science and business and then you went on to, it's just like such a seamless path that I feel like most people, especially veterans, don't find themselves on. Sure. So I, I do want to clarify in the contract with the Marines, it's the warfighting lab there with the Marine Corps, but I have been impressed. The Marines are kind of a no nonsense group and they're just like, screw it. We're just going to go ahead with this thing. And they do whatever the commandant wants. And it's in, in some ways I've been really impressed that they've moved faster than many of the other groups out there that, that we're aware of. Um, and it's cause I think they're just scrappy and they do a lot, they do a lot with a little. So I have great respect for them and, and they've been great partners, but as for the path, <clears throat> Looking back, it sounds a lot cleaner than it felt at the time, certainly. But I will say that there was a definite kind of North Star that we were heading towards. When I got out of the military, I knew that I wanted to found a company to solve problems for folks in the military. And so I plotted my way through Columbia to position myself to do that. After a few years, I was able to do that successfully. We then launched into our first product based on what we knew at the time. Then of course, through everything that we learned through a couple of years, we realized that we were too early and we had to, to pivot. And I think one of the things that really informed our pivot and the traction that we have now is for those listening, the DOD kind of runs as really any industry, but they run primarily their acquisitions along these dominant narratives that exist. When you hear these buzzwords thrown around, like Today, it's called Joint All-Domain Command and Control is the, the flavor of it'll be the next couple of years. Prior to this, it was like human machine teaming and drones and robots. And in each kind of subcategory, there's a sub-narrative that's very dominant. And they release RFPs based on these narratives. And so all the competition or the entire industry organizes around that narrative and builds to it. What we did, and I, I think we did this really well, was we looked at the narrative and we thought more deeply about the problem, I think, than most of the folks in the DOD really did and realized that the dominant narrative that existed was wrong. And the reason that they kept funding the same narrative, I think the first iteration was in 1989 was when they started, um, kind of along the situational awareness narrative, trying to put software on soldiers, trying to get guys in the field to, to be more efficient with their communications. You know, anybody that's been in the military has heard situational awareness. It's this nebulous term that's, that's overused, but it drives all the RFPs. It drives what industry does. It drives all the buzzwords. And the reality is that the mental models for how you build a, a solution to solve in air quotes, situational awareness is totally wrong. And that's why for 30 years, they have failed every time they fielded a solution. So we thought more deeply about the problem, really understood it from a first principles perspective, also conversely from a, a level of abstraction where we threw out the details and just looked at the larger patterns that were taking place. The first 15 minutes of every pitch is actually us just re-educating them on how to think about the problem and why their dominant narratives were wrong. We don't even talk about our product. And I think that's 
it's common when you're creating something new, like creating a new category, if you will, a new category of, of, of problem, a new category of solution. I think we're doing that very effectively. And so by the time we get to our product, it's just obvious. It's the only solution that could work. And that's not to say others couldn't do it, but we've just thought about things entirely differently. And that has led to, you know, what I would say is unusual traction at this stage from program offices. This whole story would look much less deliberate if we didn't have any traction five years in, but fortunately we do. And so it looks, looks a lot better than it felt throughout the last four and a half you know, years. I will say that, but it's been a lot of fun in the last, last six to eight months has been a lot of fun just because it's, it's not, not like a slow moving car wreck where you can see something bad happening at the end. It's like slow moving success where everybody, everybody sees what's coming, but it's just taking a while to get there because it's the DOD. Is there anybody that if there's a listener who has a connection, has, has a capability that they should reach out to you? Sure. We're always looking to meet folks that, that are interested in the space from an investment perspective. It's, even if it's not the right fit, it's just, it's a small community and we like to know as many folks in the community as possible. And I know the East coast has good representation. Boston has, has great representation in that regard. The other would be, you know, folks in industry, uh, particularly in the military that are program offices that are requirements or, you know, combat development, whatever kind of role or discipline they fill within kind of the acquisitions world, our product, if it piques your interest, cuts across unmanned systems, communications, IT, uh, 4i, situational awareness, you, you name it, we, we're horizontal in that way. And so if you're interested in learning more, we're always interested in talking with folks like that. Could you quantify in whatever way you'd like the role federal dollars have had on your development? And then number one, and then number two, how much equity do you think that gov these government programs have saved you? Yeah, I mean, the role of, I mean, it's been huge. We've raised four and a quarter million, and we've pulled in from the DOD about three and a half million in non-dilutive capital. So it's matched almost one-to-one. -one. And over the next 12 months, we'll pull in another five in non-dilutive capital. So we're now getting to the point where the non-dilutive, the NRE, the non-recurring engineering dollars that we're getting from the DOD is quickly outpacing the VC. And, uh, and that's wonderful because that's equity that we don't have to give up. Th that's been absolutely huge. But, but I will say again, the the thing that's equally as important if you're really serious about building for the DOD is getting access to users and buyers. And you're not going to do that without a contract. And without tight iterations, you're dead in the water, tight feedback loops. And Sibbers provide that. And so they are very onerous. If you're not serious about the DOD and you're just looking for non-dilutive capital, don't do it. Go commercial and figure it out for bandwidth reasons. And you don't want to be driving off the end of a pier. But if you are serious, Sibbers are a great route to get your foot in the door, get the lay of the land. And once you have won that, that will significantly expedite program offices looking to work with you. So it's, they're absolutely critical if, if you're early stage and going after the DOD from a non-dilutive capital perspective, from a access and placement perspective, and from, you know, your future kind of production designs, if you will. That was Jake Bullock from Wraith. And to hear more founder stories, visit undiluted.fedscout.com. We release new episodes each week, so please like, follow, and subscribe, and thank you for listening. We'll